Last week we began a, a sermon series called Hashtag Blessed by the Word. And the focus of this series is that we are looking at the ways that Scripture, God's Word, guides us into blessing and therefore we are blessed by it. And so the angle that we're taking on this series is we're looking at how we perceive blessing in our lives and what it means to be hashtag blessed. Somebody told me this is the, the finger sign that people use for hashtag. So again, you're learning something today. If you learn nothing else, you know that. Um, and I, it's a hashtag that we see used in social media, right? Hashtag blessed. And it's a way that people uh, label pictures, photos, life announcements, blessings that they have, good things that are in their lives that they are grateful for. And that is a great thing to do, to celebrate, especially when you think that those things come from the Lord and know that they come from the Lord. That's a good thing to do. But I prompted us with the question of what happens when the blessing, the thing that we feel hashtag blessed by, is gone. What happens when the good thing, the health, the job, the success, you fill in the blank. What happens when that thing disappears? Are we still blessed? It raises the question, on what basis do we determine whether or not we are blessed? And as I said last week, one of the most beautiful things that God has desired to convince us of is that there is a deep and abiding blessing, a blessing that is not determined by any circumstance other than our relationship with Him. God wants us to be hashtag blessed. And so today we'll see once again that God guides us toward this blessing through His Word. I do want to review a little bit of last week. Last week we looked at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 famously lays out two paths. So you have the the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Or in more basic terms, the way of people who follow God's instruction and the way of people who don't. And so the psalmist uses this vivid illustration of two plants to illustrate these two ways. He uses the image of a tree that is planted by streams of water, that is tapped in to a source of, of flourishing. And so it yields its fruit in season and its, we, its leaf never withers, right? That is what he uses to illustrate the way of the righteous, those that follow God's law. In contrast to that, the way of the wicked Certainly they will have a season where they flourish, but they are like chaff. They flourish for a moment, and then they're blown away and driven away by the wind. The point of the psalmist is there's an immense difference in the blessing. There's an immense difference in life, in flourishing, between those who follow God's instructions and those don't. And I raised the issue in last week's message that, do we qualify? The question, do we qualify for God's blessing, because none of us follow his instruction 100% of the time. And the good news that Psalm 1 points us to is that in Christ, the answer is yes and amen. Yes and amen. In Christ, we can receive God's blessing. Psalm 1 lays the foundation for the place of God's word, in that through God's word, we find the resources for flourishing by being connected to the living God through Christ. Someone shows us that through the life-giving word, we are hashtag blessed by the word. Well, this week, we're continuing the series, and we're looking at Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 shows us that we are blessed by the word because the word reveals God to us. And this morning, we are going to see that it does this in three ways. 
And the first way that the Word reveals God to us is it reveals His perfection to us. I'll give you some synonyms for that in case that's hard to, to grasp. It reveals our holiness or His holiness to us. It reveals His excellence to us. So when, we, when you hear me talk about God's perfection, it's talking about His purity, His righteousness. That's the first way that Psalm 19 uh, shows us God through the Word. The Word reveals God to us by first revealing His perfection to us. So let's begin reading Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. In these first verses, our attention is directed not to the Word of God, but to creation, to the heavens. The psalmist directs our attention to how the heavens begin revealing God's glory to us first. Have you ever been in a moment uh, in your life where you've been awestruck by the expanse and beauty of the heavens? Have you ever had one of those moments? There's two experiences that kind of came to my mind as I reflected on that. The first one uh, that I can remember is the first time that I was in an airplane. And I can remember it so vividly because it wasn't that long ago. I was 20 years old when I was in an airplane for the first time. I know some of you are like, wow, I can't believe that. But I was. I didn't have anywhere to go until I was 20. And you can't get to Israel by car. So I remember we took off. It was overcast. It was rainy. There was no sunshine. And, you know, as we're taking off, your attention, if you have a window seat like I did, uh, was just fixated on the ground, and the details of the earth are just getting smaller and smaller as the plane lifts, and then you're all of a sudden in a cloud, and you cannot even barely see the ends of the wings of the plane. And then the plane breaks through the cloud cover, and all of a sudden, the sun is radiant and shining. And you just see the tops of all of what underneath looks like overcast and gray. And on the tops, it's just beautiful and white and pillowy. And it was a moment where I was just captured by the beauty and the expanse of the heavens. Another another experience that came to mind is whenever I've been out camping. And I don't know if any of you like to camp or like to get away from, I think it's called light pollution. Where basically, you know, here in the city, we have all of these lights and it totally, uh, it totally obscures our vision of the stars. But if you ever get to a place where it's so dark and there are no lights around and you see the stars and they're brighter and more brilliant than you might ever remember, those are two experiences that I've had that my mind was kind of guided by the psalm to reflect on. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about uh, this church and the people here are the incredible gifts and talents that we have been uh, given by the Lord. There are so many 
musicians and vocalists and craftsmen and artists and people with incredible administrative skills, which is also a beautiful thing. And I remember back in August when we got our first tour of this church, Pastor Terrence was giving us the tour, and he was very careful to point out, now do you see this? This was done by one of our wonderful members, skilled, and he would point out all the ways in which a beautiful piece of artwork, a beautiful piece of craftsmanship, beautiful music had been done by the people here. And as you look around the, this church building and you see the, the wonderful creations and, and craftsmanship and skill work, it speaks of the incredible talent that there is in this church. And in a very similar way, Psalm 19 is saying, when you look at the heavens, it speaks of the incredible perfection and glory of God. That's what Psalm 19 begins by doing. It, it directs us to look at the heavens. The heavens declare God's glory and perfection. Of course, there are no words being spoken, and yet, if you look into the heavens, the message is so clear. His handiwork reveals his perfection to us. Of course, all of creation testifies to God's glory, but nothing helps us gain a sense of the expanse of God's power, and nor is there a revelation that is so universal as the heavens. By the way, have you ever noticed how throughout Scripture, God often directs the attention uh, of his people to the heavens to emphasize his power and his promises. Think about Noah with the rainbow. Think about Abraham with the stars in the sky. Think about Jacob in the dream with the stairs coming down from heaven. Often the heavens and the sky is the place where God testifies to his promises. And even in a day-to-day ordinary sense, as the sun comes up and sheds light on the earth, is a constant testifying and declaration of God and his righteousness and his glory. I find it so interesting how this psalm emphasizes that there are no words, but this message is so clear and universal. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard, but their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So there's no speech, there's no words, and yet the voice goes out through the whole world. How did the heavens speak? The psalmist writes, by being the dwelling place, a tent for the sun. He personifies the sun. The sun joyfully runs its course like a strong man. Now, I ran a marathon one time, and I do not think I ran it with a whole lot of joy by mile 19. Mile 19, the joy was gone. I was just looking for the finish line, right? But a strong man races no, it's no match for him. He takes joy in the challenge of a race because he is prepared for it. He runs it with joy. There might be someone like Carrie. Carrie runs marathons with joy. I don't. There's a difference there. But the psalmist says the sun, it runs, a, it runs its course with joy, like a bridegroom coming from its chamber, filled with joy, elated. And so as it runs its course day to day, it testifies over and over again God's glory and perfection. Psalmist concludes by saying that nothing is hidden from its heat. It sheds light everywhere. The sun is known by everyone. The point the psalmist is making is that there's no place where God's glory is not being revealed. This might remind us of Paul's words in Romans 1.20 
where he writes that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, are clearly seen. So there's no reason for people to not be aware of God's presence if they would only take in the heavens. God has revealed himself universally through creation. You might sometimes hear this referred to as general revelation. The ways that God has made himself known through creation, through the things we see every day in a universal or general way. But while God makes his presence known through the declaration of the heavens, the heavens don't tell us how we relate to God, do they? As the Westminster Confession says in its first paragraph, and I'll just summarize it for us, knowing that God exists doesn't give us the knowledge necessary to interact with him. Just because we know that God is real doesn't tell us how we relate to Him. We're still left with many questions. What is God like? Will He punish us? Does He love us? Is He caring? Will He protect? Is He truthful? Does He manipulate? How do we make Him happy? What does He want from us? All these questions remain. How do we relate to God? God knows that we do not know, naturally, from looking at the Son, how to relate to Him. And so, He has given His people, revealed Himself further through His Word, the Law, the Torah. Picking up at verse 7, we see these words. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, at first glance, it might seem like the psalmist is just using synonyms in reference to God's law. But these are actually not synonyms necessarily, but they're different aspects or facets of God's law that represent the whole of his instruction, the whole of the Torah. So we have these words of Torah and commandment, and and those are the words for the whole of God's instruction. But then we have a word like testimony, and that is referring to the parts of God's word that serve as a witness to God's character. We then have the word precepts, or the parts that guide and direct on how people should live. We have the word rules, and these would be the the judgments, or refer to what should be done in particular cases, the case law of how God would advise us to exact justice in the world. And then we have, interestingly, this fear, which, you know, that song, one of these things is not like the other. That one just doesn't seem to fit, right? But the fear of the Lord is describing the reverence in which one must receive and live under the law. The disposition that the law requires from us. And then we see these adjectives. God's law is described in all these facets as perfect, sure, right, pure. And the fear of the Lord is described as clean. These adjectives describe how Scripture is sufficient. It is trustworthy. It is not perverse or corrupt. It is brilliant or radiant in its truthfulness. And it is unstained. Together, this is a summary of God's law. And the psalmist is trying to say that God's law is a blessing to God's people. 
It brings them a revival to the soul by bringing restoration and refreshment. It helps the simple or immature to be made wise. Can I get an amen? It causes rejoicing in the heart because of the promise and the blessings that God unfolds in His Word. It helps people see the world clearly, enlightening their eyes to see things from God's perspective. And it's eternal and enduring. It's not stuck in a context and only has application for one period of time. But God's Word endures through the expanse of time and is true for all times and seasons. God's Word can be this perfect and it can accomplish these things because it comes from one who is perfect. As the psalmist writes about the perfection of God's Word, he's really talking about the the perfection of God. The only reason the psalmist can write these things about God's Word is because it's all true of Him. In God's Word, His nature is revealed to us. His perfection, His righteousness, His holiness, His justice, all of God's communicable and incommunicable attributes, they are revealed in detail in His Word. And the psalmist wants us to understand that this is special. It's so special and of such importance, he writes, it's more to be desired than even the finest gold. Gold that has been refined and pure, even if you had mountains of it, that God's word is more valuable than that. And it's sweeter than honey, sweeter than the drippings of a honeycomb. John Calvin writes about this line that the psalmist wants us to be convinced that God's word is more valuable than anything else. But we can't just esteem it as valuable. We also have to develop a love for it. And hence, the psalmist includes this line about the sweetness, hinting at the satisfaction and the desire that we might have in our hearts for the Word. It's at this point in the psalm that the psalm takes a turn. It's almost like the psalmist is faced with such a clear picture of God's perfection that he suddenly becomes aware of his own imperfections, his own shortcomings. He writes in verse 11 and 12, Moreover, by them, by the law, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his own errors? What a great question. Often we like to think we're excellent judges of character, especially our own. We like to see things from our perspective and think that we see things objectively. But when it comes to life, oftentimes we like to shed guilt if we can. But as God's Word reveals His perfection to us, the other thing it does, and this is the second point, is it reveals our sin to us. There's a sense in which God's Word blesses us because it reveals God's perfection to us. But as we stare upon His perfection and His holiness, as the song we sang earlier, it condemns us. It shows us our sin. I don't mean to quote Calvin too much, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out the way that he begins his well-known systematic theology, the Institutes for Christian Religion. Calvin begins in the second paragraph by saying, without knowledge of God, There is no knowledge of self. He says that we can never get a clear picture of who we really are and how we can relate to God or how we do relate to God without knowing about God first. 
And this psalm guides us in that same line of thought. Here are, here's God. Here is the, the expanse of his perfection. And as you start to gain a glimpse of how holy he is, you begin to get a sense of who you really are. And that happens for the psalmist as well. Calvin's point is that we will always have a skewed view on reality, but it's the Word of God that makes us aware of the disparity that exists between ourselves and God. In Romans 3.23, Paul explains that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anytime we compare ourselves to God and His standards, we fall way short. This is the part of God's Word I think many of us wrestle with. This is the part that many of members of our families, maybe our friends and the people in our neighborhoods might wrestle with. That when they read God's Word and they see all the ways in which God tells His people to live, it does not feel like a blessing to them. It feels like a curse. We might hear something from them like this. You say that God wants me to be blessed and to have fellowship with Him, but as I look at these rules... Every time I compare myself with God, every time I read the warnings and the stories, I feel like I match up more with the wicked people than I do with God. Or you might hear them say, you say that being a Christian is joyful, but as I see it, it just looks like a burden, like a big list of things that God arbitrarily says are wrong. Or maybe you've heard something like this. You know, when I look at other Christians, I feel judged. I get the feeling that they think they're better than me, that they aren't as perfect as, but they're not as perfect as they think. To me, they look a lot more like me than they look like one of God's people. How does God's word bring blessing when it seems like all it does is point out flaws? Maybe you've heard words like that before. Maybe you have even thought or said words like that before. How does God's word bring blessing? God's word bring blessing whenever it seems like all it does is point out our flaws. And the answer is that while it does indeed point out our flaws, it also points us to receive forgiveness. See, the whole picture of Psalm 19 is that yes, it shows us God in his perfection. Yes, it shows us our sin and our flaws, but it also shows us God and His grace. And that's the third point. The psalmist, in this flash of reality, turns and he seeks pardon and assistance from God. As he is kind of overcome with a sense of his inadequacy, that he does not measure up to God's standard, he writes these words, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. The word here is a, is a word that describes sins that are both inner and outer. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the third way that God's word reveals God to us. God's word reveals grace to us. When the psalmist sees how far he has fallen short of God's glory, he doesn't wallow in despair, but he leans into God's grace and he seeks God as his rock and redeemer. When Jesus walked the earth 
It was his perfection and his integrity with the law that confirmed his identity, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. He said of himself that he came to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, that he was the fulfillment of God's word. And so this means that God's word is always pointing our attention to Jesus, trying to place our focus on him, that in Christ we would see who God is and understand who we are in the most clear way. And so the descriptions that are attributed to God's word in Psalm 19 are the same adjectives that are attributed to Christ. The same perfection and holiness and righteousness found in God's word is found in Jesus. But Christ also reveals the same grace that is found in God and in God's word. There seem to be a lot of parallels with John's gospel and Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, it says that God made a tent for the sun that reveals God's glory in a way that brings light to the world and nothing can escape from its heat. And interestingly, it's in John's gospel as Jesus is introduced to us, God's only begotten son, he's introduced to us as the word who created all things and puts up a tent or tabernacles or dwelt among us to reveal God's glory. Listen to John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt. It's the word tabernacled. Put up a tent among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to understand that Jesus is the living Word, the eternal Word. He's the one by whom all things in heaven and earth were made, and he's the one sent to reveal God's glory to us in the fullest measure. It's not just the glory of God's perfection and righteousness that Jesus came to reveal, but also the perfection of God's grace that Jesus came to reveal to us. When we stand and we compare ourselves to Jesus, we don't look any better. It's not like Jesus softens up the truth and holiness of God for us. The standard is still the standard. But when we stand next to Jesus, we're not, just being, we're not just being compared against the truth, but we're also being enfolded in grace. John writes, Jesus not only revealed the Father's glory in truth, but he revealed the glory of his grace. Tim Keller has this great and classic line. It's probably worth writing down or looking up so that you can uh, remember this for yourself. He writes, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe and yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. We're more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. You do not know the extent of the sin that you have uh, trespassed against the Lord. The Word reveals that to us, and over time we will come to understand and see our sinfulness more and more. As we look at Christ and the righteousness of, that He displays, we'll see how sinful we are in a deeper way. But at the same time, as we look to Christ, we see that we are more loved and accepted by God than we would ever hope for. Jesus came not to reveal only God's righteousness, but His grace by doing everything necessary for us to be forgiven of every flaw, every sin, every thought that falls short of God's glory. 
And this is what we pray that others would see. When our friends and family and our neighbors look at the Word and they see God's righteousness and they see their own sin and ours, our hope is that God's Word would also reveal to them His grace. That they would get the full picture of who God is. And not just a partial one. The full picture of His glory. This should be the prayer on our hearts. That God's Word would reveal His grace to us. Not just His truth. Not just the fact that we are sinful, but the fact that we are loved and you can be assured of God's love by His grace in Christ. And the psalmist points us to this grace in his closing lines. The more I've meditated on this passage, Psalm 19, the more it seems like it really points forward to Jesus. The Son is used in Psalm 19 to reveal God's glory. And the psalmist says that nothing is hidden from its heat. If you think about the heat of the sun, the heat of the sun is a good thing, right? It can be a great thing. It it can bring warmth. It can revive us. It can cause things to flourish and to grow. But the heat of the sun can also be so intense that without a filter or a shade, it can scorch and it can kill, right? In the same way, Psalm 19 guides our minds to see that in the light of God's perfection and glory, even though there is life and truth in it, none of us can stand before its judgment. Just like nothing escapes the heat of the sun, nothing escapes God's perfect word or his standards. But the psalmist asks God for help. He seeks refuge and forgiveness in God, whose glory is being revealed and poured out on the earth. He seeks protection from God. He refers to God. He uses two words. He says, my rock and my redeemer. When we read those words, we might first think of the rock as a place of solid ground, a firm foundation. And Scripture definitely uses the rock in this way. But we also have to remember that in the wilderness, rocks are often a place of refuge, a shade from the scorching heat of the sun. Like when God would have his glory pass by Moses, he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock so that Moses would not die. God's perfection was too much, but the rock is what kept Moses safe. And so it is for us in Jesus Christ. Standing on our own against God's word, against his perfections, we would be scorched. The judgments are too much for us to bear. We find condemnation. And so the word does not feel like a blessing, but it points us forward to Christ. Christ who acts as a shade. Christ who is our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus that we have this good news. That he stands in our place and he offers himself to be judged on our account. And when the full weight of God's perfection and judgments fall on Christ and not us, we have a place to stand. A place to enjoy the warmth and to receive life and the radiance in light of God's glory. This other word the psalmist uses, uh, the word goel or redeemer, it's a word for a relative that acts on behalf of another who is less fortunate. And Christ surely is our redeemer. He was the one who made himself like us in every way, being our true relative so that he might act on our behalf, redeeming us from where we are. Just to summarize for us, Psalm 19 shows us God's Word reveals God to us. It reveals God through His perfections, His holiness, His righteousness, 
As that is revealed, we get a sense of who we are. We see our sin. We see how far, how far we fall short of God's glory. And yet, it also shows us the full picture of God by pointing us to His grace. And it's in Christ that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart can be found pleasing and acceptable in God's sight. Our thoughts and words will never match the perfection and glory of God, but in Christ we have a refuge. We find forgiveness. We find help and protection. He was made like us in every way, yet without sin, so that we could be blessed in every way. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the richness of the word. We thank you for how you sent Jesus, the Son, the living word, to reveal your glory to us. And I pray, Father, that our hearts and minds would be encouraged and strengthened in faith, that we would have a full picture of your glory. Help us not to have idols set up where we think you're a God that only judges and does not offer grace. Lord, we pray that this word through your Spirit, would be revealed to our loved ones, to those who are of your flock and yet not yet brought into the fold. Use us, Father, to preach this good news. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.